You know, if you've been hit over the head by an ignorant priest uh, with a big three-foot-long ruler uh, because you got something wrong, you kind of your view of, of the world tends to sort of you know radicalize quite quickly. Hello, welcome to Confessions. My name's Jarvis Fraser, and this is the podcast where we talk to interesting and well-known people and try and work out what it is that makes them tick. And uh, today I have with me um, Mr. Paul Mason. Hello. Uh, who's uh, a man of letters, uh, uh, was economics editor of uh, Channel 4 News, but uh, a playwright, musician, filmmaker, uh, more besides. <laughs> yeah, and the last time I was in a confessional was a long time ago. <laughs> have you been in a confessional of course before? I, have. I was. I was. I was brought up a Catholic. All oh, right, and so I know the whole thing. You know, oh, I know the whole thing. <laughs> I, the, I know the code, the Catholic code for each sin. So you're sitting but in a small I've room here with a priest. Commandment so. X. Yeah, <laughs> that's not the first time. Then, no. uh, how we start, Paul, is we normally um, uh, just start by I start by asking you to say just a bit about your family background and your home and where you're from and something about the values um, that were sort of you imbibed when you were a kid. So I grew up in Lee, in Lancashire. Um, it's part of Wigan now, but it was a separate town then and is a fiercely uh, local uh, culture and community, mining and cotton, one of the earliest industrial uh, communities in, in the world in that sense. Um, I'd have to say I had a brilliant childhood. I, I really was happy. My family is slightly unusual because my dad and granddad and his dad had been miners uh, from from that area, uh, as far back as I can trace them, they go back to Denton in Manchester as hat makers, but they were manual workers, um, and that culture. So my granddad lived in a council house. Me, my other side of the family came from uh, Jewish refugees in the late nineteenth century who'd get, gone to America and didn't like it, so came back to Liverpool and from so, Poland, <clears throat> Lithuania, the Kingdom of Poland and Lithuania. Yeah. I keep trying to tra- track them down, but I'm not having much luck with 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 one of them, the key one, uh, David Lloyd Wilshinsky, uh, my great grandfather, where he came from. But anyway, I know I know he was he was in Manhattan and then he was in Liverpool and 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 then <clears throat> my my grandfather who died in 1940 had been a, a jazz musician, sort of sort of second tier but professional jazz musician. And so that kind of mixture of, you know, it was George Orwell used to call it shabby gentility. So that side of the family had, you know, the, my grandma and great grandma's house on that side of the family had like, side. <clears throat> yeah, my mum's side had antimacassars. You know, they had like doilies and they had like uh, ticking <laughs> clocks that ticked, you know, that lots of old furniture and lots of old bits of, you know, net curtains, it's silver fox fur from the 1930s because they had lived a decent life in the 30s as a, as jazz as a jazz musician uh, my grandma and grandma jazz music jazz musician couple you know in glen eagles and places like that uh, the, the hotel not the golf course so as a result of having these two backgrounds i think i just got the best of both of them i got, I, I was really you know inculcated into that in, incredibly solidaristic world of the mining and cotton town and in its traditions, its political traditions, which is moderate socialism, I never saw a red flag. You know, I never saw a, I never saw a demo in 18 years of living in Lee. Um, you know, the, the the first miners banner I saw was has a picture of um, people playing cricket in the evening on it. <laughs> yeah, that was the ideal. And of course, my granddad's generation had fought. What does that mean? They'd fought for showers in the pithead, uh, so they didn't have to get bathed in a tin bath at home, and therefore they don't had time. 
to go and play cricket on a summer evening and have a pint. So that was all, that was what socialism meant to them. Of course, the NHS, the council house they lived in, the you know water, electricity, railway, all owned by the state. As I was growing up, <clears throat> but then the other side of it. My mum wasn't, you know, my mum never went to university. When I was a child, she went to night school to become a teacher, having been a secretary, which was incredibly clever. And I get my intellectual curiosity, general attitude to life from her. I'm from that world, that world, that mysterious world of going into the cupboards and finding, you know, relic, a saxophone reed and a, and a banjo and a kind of straw hat. This had been a theatrical family as well they'd run a theatrical boarding house and so my mum's uh, my mum's own childhood tales were all full of you know living among dwarves and jugglers and things like this so yeah so that, then there's me my sister my mum my dad classic nuclear family in lee in the 60s every year rising prosperity every year wa real wages buy more modernity modernism happened to the town so you know a, a library built in the modernist style was open and we were really it's still there really proud of it uh although it's surrounded by a, a, an urban wasteland now uh, of neoliberalism so yeah that's my childhood as i say catholic family uh, you know my mum converted to catholicism to marry my dad i see so, so, that's what, that's so the judaism called, the judaism sort of got a bit lost. It, 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 got, it wasn't a massive thing i don't think for any of them you know they ate bacon sandwiches etc the kind of catholic world around me was also a very i think you know bearing in mind what we know know about the catholic institutions in the 1960s until i turned 11 and went to a grammar school it, it was a fairly nurturing environment it, it encouraged intellectuality even in young children you know if you go through the whole thing you as a clergyman know this you know the confession the the confirmation you, you spend a long time learning about religion but actually if you want to you can understand it as ideas um, of course, I re rejected religion at a very early age. But yeah, so, so that, that's But embedded childhood. in the community. So the community is like a, a sort of central... Sort oh, of... we were like, it's sort of like mini Northern Ireland. We were marching up and down the street with our Catholic banners, really kind of relishing the moment you went past the Protestant church to piss <laughs> them off. And then they would march past our church. Then was the Methodists... About you ten... still got a residual anti-Protestantism, though, I, I think. Well, we'll get into that. <laughs> um, no, it was a world of uh, with many... Collegiate institutions, right. so brass bands, yes, jazz bands, yes, uh, sports teams, yes, and and we forget now that this was also when I later when you know when I got factory jobs in that town in my in my holidays, it, you were surrounded by the, these institutions everywhere. You know the the the, the firm I worked for in, as as a in in the labs, which was a carbon carbon processing firm called Sutcliffe and Speakman. They had a massive factory. It had a bowling green inside the factory complex and a canteen and a pub, and it had several football teams. Uh, you couldn't move for society. It was all around Extraordinary. you. Extraordinary. You don't have that anymore. Well, I mean, it's been destroyed by neoliberalism. Yes, it has. And, yeah. I, you know, I've lived at a time, I'm 59 now, I've lived at a time to see the birth, the, the violent birth of this economic system, free market Neoliberalism, whatever you want to call it, uh, and I've and I've, I'm seeing it's disastrous. Well, we'll talk, we're going to talk about that in a minute. So let's just tell a story of you before we get on All to right, that. So, so that's that. That sounds idyllic, child. <laughs> and, and but your and your ideas, I, I imagine at that time, are just sort of 
you, you suck them up from osmosis from your dad and your mum and your we learned we learned about like things like, like the Peterloo massacre at school. So you know you, you learn social history. It was a big time for social history, and of course I don't think this has anything to do with this Catholic social teaching and the rest of it. Uh, although it didn't it didn't stand in the way uh, of of a social engagement with the world. But when my mum went to night school, she came back reading E. P. Thompson. Edward Thompson's book, you know, The Making of the English Working Class. And she shows it to my dad. Dad could probably read music more fluently than he read uh, books. But he did read books. But she shows him the relevant passage and he just went, it, it, he was so angry. He said, we had no idea this had happened. To, and it, to him, for his grandparents, his grandparents were born in the mid-19th century. So he's thinking, hold on a minute, you know, this is what, this is what happened to us. It's not like some theory in a book. And that, plus, of course... Again, the thing we massively miss today, the, the permeation of working class life by cultural, you know, cultural dialogue. So, so what you have to explain the, the, the E.P. Thompson and what, what so yeah. this is what's happened to, to us. What, what did he feel had well, happened to us? The, I mean, you know, the conditions in the 19th century factory where there was, you know, obligatory silence, corporal punishment, ritualised sexual violence, ritualised. The example given of, of overseers spitting into the mouths of children as a punishment. You know, my dad had grown up in the 30s in, and really had a, had a hard childhood. And I attribute my own very good childhood to his determination. And because my mum had lost her father very young as well, they were determined to have a family. His, his family had, had really suffered from uh, poverty in the 30s. You know, he tells me stories, of, he told me stories about grabbing his own mother by the knees to prevent her from answering the door because every time the door was answered, a piece of furniture was taken away. Oh, and then domestic violence would occur as a result of this. My granddad was a hard guy. You know, my dad, like, wanted there to be a, you know, a positive, vibrant, interesting, engaged culture in the world around him. And like many other people, he, he just went about building it. You know, he, he's an ex, he, he, so I've got music on both sides of the family. I had the, the jazz musicians in the, from the 30s, and then my dad was a ba big brass and dance right, band, right, uh, yeah, trombonist. Yeah. And so you would just, you know, we'd sit there and we'd ask ourselves things like, you know, how does Charlie Parker construct one of his solos? And around about the age of sort of nine or ten, I can remember having these kind of discussions with my dad. How do they do this? Now, he had no training or, or you know, now you can look it up on YouTube, how to, you know, how to play like Parker, how to play like JJ, you know, whatever. It wasn't hard to access culture because we had, you know, great TV programmes, the, the local t Granada TV programmes, especially in the 70s when things got scratchier, really engaged with all the social conflicts that were then going on. And, of course, there's Vietnam. Vietnam was a presence. You know, there was anti-Vietnam War graffiti in, in my town from around about the late 60s. There was, you could see it on the television. This may be a false memory, but I'm certain it isn't. I'm pretty certain that I saw on the original TV reports two iconic images from the Vietnam War because we used to all watch the news together. There was no, let's not watch. We watch it. You know, the one of the, the naked girl running down the napalm victim running down the, the lane with her skin hanging off. And there's another what famous one of, of a soldier who'd been hit by napalm and is staggering through the, the bush on fire. And I remember seeing them. So, you know, then around you, there is theatre groups like we had one in the town called Pit Prop, which was a radical left-wing theatre group. There was uh, 784 and all that, you know, which, which uh, all of those kind of things were around and they visited and they came. 
And you know, later, so of course, in the, in the 70s, things got scratchier. And I was right on the edge of, you know, the punk phenomenon. John Cooper Clark would turn up in our local library. <laughs> to, and and he, these outrageous poems full of vitriol and, 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 and uh, blasphemy uh, were all accessible to us. And the thing was, we knew what they were. We knew how to, we knew what it was that they were saying. You know, we didn't live in this culture that we have now of like celebrity obsession. And where to, when I say celebrity, it's like, you know, all the singing, all the singing on all the song shows is all exactly the same. We lived in a, in a rapidly changing world where, you know, one Beatles album was completely different to the next Beatles album. You expected each year culture to change and develop and, and bifurcate. And, you know, now we're trapped in this, what uh, the Italian philosopher Franco Berardi has called, you know, kind of the slow cancellation of the future. We're trapped in a permanent now that never changes. And, of course, one of the reasons why... You talk about Kate Moss in your book uh, and about... Yeah, about, but, about um... Well, yeah, in the book, in the book, look, one of the examples I use is in the book, like, I, picked, I was on a train and I picked up this magazine. It's on this, and it, it had an advert on the back with, with Kate Moss lying there semi-naked and, and, it, and, it's, and it's a perfume called Obsessed. And I looked at it and I thought, bloody hell, Kate Moss looks really, really young these days. And then I, then I realised... It was just a, a, a photograph they'd taken 25 years before because they were just reinventing the uh, Calvin Klein's Obsession uh, uh, perfume. And they were using the same photo. Now, I, if you'd shown me a photo of Marilyn Monroe in 1970, I would have read it as vintage. Oh, that's, that's an old movie star. But it's impossible to read the Kate Moss thing as old because it's just timeless. And they've created, in modern culture, it just... It, it, Eternal it, recurrence of the same. But there's been no, no this suit I'm wearing, or if I was female, the female business suits that people turn up in, don't, haven't significantly changed from the ones they were wearing in the 70s. The odd, the odd shape change takes place. So let, let's go yeah, back. So, so let's, we're, let's, we're trapped in, we're <clears throat> trapped in this permanent, boring, two-dimensional present, and I want to break out of it. Yeah. So, uh, so I completely understand you've expressed it really powerfully about the sort of way in which you would imbibe the values of uh, of your of of Lee and your and your family. You, you left home to go to university or to work. Uh, how did how did the leaving home thing go? In the intervening period, I went to a Catholic grammar school. Yeah. Catholic grammar school both made me and made me very angry uh, because. Uh, there was there was there was, there was definitely uh, sexual abuse around. Didn't happen to me, but there was more importantly physical abuse and ignorance. You know, if you've been hit over the head by an ignorant priest uh, with a big three foot long ruler uh, because you got something wrong, you kind of your view of, of the world tends to sort of you know radicalize quite quickly. And yet, despite that, it was also a time of intellectual ferment. You know, it was a three day week. You know, we we, we were let off school early because the miners had shut down the country. And you couldn't move for social conflict, the rise of the, the National Front, the fascists. And, of course, the Irish War, you know, dragging on, being a Catholic school, we're very aware of it as well. So there was this very positive aspect of, of being there, which was, it was, by the time you're in the fourth, fifth, sixth form, you're allowed to and you want to discuss everything, all ideas. Uh, but at the same time, you've got these people who don't, for example, you know, they try to give you lessons about biology, but they don't know how the female reproductive system works. And it was quite obvious to us by then, 14-year-old uh, lads who had girlfriends, that we knew more than them about basic biology. So, I, you know, round about, I, I, I never, to be honest, I, I cannot remember a time when I believed in Catholicism. I just thought it's a weird ritual. But, you know, 
I think when I was 16, read the Communist Manifesto, uh, was reading Hobbesbaum. I was reading, I wasn't reading Thompson then, but Hobbesbaum. I was engaged in all the kind of, we had a left-wing bookshop on the high street full of like little, you know, uh, books about, um, cartoon books explaining Marxism. So I just got into that. And it was quite interesting because, of course, as well, you could actually go to school and theologically debate it. The, the guys in the, you know, in the cassocks were well aware of where my ideas were coming from because, um, you know, some of them had been in, you know, in Latin America, Africa. And anyway, they'd all read Pope, John, Pope Paul's, you know, encyclical about, you know, social justice, etc. And they, they, the Salesians who taught us, uh, which is a kind of cut price Jesuit um, order, <laughs> were, were, you know, were, were intellectuals. And so good. And then so at age 18, thing is, I, I, I was a, mu- a child musician. And so I, you know, I specialized in music. I took art, history, music. General Studies, A-level, did all right. Went to Sheffield University to study music. But when I got there, the world was just so in ferment. It was one year before Thatcher comes to power. And it was the winter of discontent, as we call it, the big truck driver strike. And I got there and I just said to them, you know, we were all allowed to do a minor subject and, and, and I wanted to do sociology and said, well, you can't do it. What can I do? Politics. So I just did politics. And by the end of that first year at at, uh, university, I just tried to convert to politics, but they wouldn't let me do that either. So I ended up doing a dual degree music and politics. I mean, so that, that was it. And at Sheffield university where I went to right in the middle of the steel strike of 1980, I may, you know, I was I remember walking to the steel picket lines at 4am, walked miles to get there. Um, saw the first use of riot shields against a picket line ever in Britain. Um, took part in that picket line, um, age 19, so I had a I had a practical introduction to everything I'd been reading for the last three years was now real. You know I can I can I can remember, I can I can remember walking down the street in Sheffield reading because this is before the days of mobile phones. Yeah, yeah. You used to read books walking along, reading Brecht's play The Mother, while like riot van after riot van was like going past me towards some disturbance, and I thought bloody hell, you know, this is real now. This is not a theory. I am in it. Uh, what I'm really interested in, uh, let's let's talk about because neoliberalism's come up quite a lot, and that's it's. What what does Lee High Street look like now? The library's still open, but many of the businesses are closed, and the the shiny new office block that we built in the in, that was built for us, and we all thought, wow, look, you know, the Lee now looks like you know New York, derelict. There's 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 ten thousand cases of domestic violence a year. It look the the community is still still very strong. Uh, the community does it has, have all uh, that cultural it, because uh, stuff that I found this about. again and again. I found it in Gary, Indiana, which is a black community. That when you've been involved in unionized work, the traditions of it actually survive, even if they turn your urban landscape into into a devastated slum. Lee is not a devastated slum, but it is impoverished. The biggest issues that when I campaigned for Labour in the 2017 election there, the biggest issues were £10 an hour minimum wage and an end to zero contracts. That was the issue that everybody related to because so few people were earning £10 an hour. And then the complete absence of all those civil society things that that there are new ones, you know, migrants come in, open a pub, open a kebab shop. Yes, that's there. And there is some tension, but it's not, you know, it's not... um, by any means, one of the worst places for um, for that kind of. As you kept done, as you kept done, did you? Yeah, you kept yeah. done well there. So you you came from nowhere to, to about twenty percent, uh, and then what they've lost, they've that those voters have gone to the Tories. So the Tories always used to be on twenty percent in Lee. Now they can probably score thirty or forty percent on a bad day for us because a section of the working class has definitely 
um, drank the Kool-Aid of of you know anti-migrant xenophobia. But you know, at the same time, don't get me wrong. I think that that town and towns like it heroically survived. You know, the destruction of industry. You know, this was a purposeful destruction of industry. Neo, the first act of neoliberalism, which I talk about in my book, was the purposive destruction of the industries in which workers were organised because they could no longer live alongside that so, organised. So the miners' strike was one of the sort of key moments for. Actually, it's even before that. See, my 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 dad, who'd had two jobs in his three jobs in his, in his entire life. Two of them lasting more or less the whole of his uh, career, which were two truck driving jobs. He started down the pit, but went, became a truck driver. He worked for this firm for 20 years, and well, nigh on 20 years, and they just sacked him overnight. This is in about 1981, 82, 83. The upside for him, because we used to stand at the end, end of our road and say, how do people afford new cars? Because I can't imagine how I'm ever going to be, afford, be able to afford a new car. Suddenly, he's got a lump sum redundancy. He buys a new Mini. Without going into massive detail, he spent the rest of his life very, very depressed. Depressed, disorientated, doing menial jobs, uh, jobs that were unsafe, became deaf as a result of one of them. And, you know, by the time he died of a, you know, of, of an illness and, and a not very well-treated illness by the NHS, I'd have to say that the future for him was looking very bleak. If he could have just hung on for five more years, you began to see the upside of this new system which is once credit began to flood into the shattered landscape, you could at least survive. But the 80s, for all of those of us who lived through it as part of the class struggle and the reality of working class life, were bleak. And my dad uh, experienced that bleakness. So, yeah, the human cost of imposing a brand new uh, doctrinaire economic system. And by neoliberalism, what I mean is a system and not a set of ideas. The ideas are often kind of, you know, I, I never trust ideas. I'm a Marxist. I, I ask, where do they come from? The global system, which was imposed in the 1980s, which is the imposition, the coercive imposition of market norms of behaviour into all aspects of life, was experienced by me, my dad's generation, and people who were born later as a trauma. But in what the, happened to... Let me just ask you yeah, a historical question. So what happened to cap- capitalism has obviously been around long before... Yeah. The, the the early 1980s yep. and so forth. So what happened to capitalism such that it transformed into this pernicious thing called neoliberalism? I see capitalism as a <clears throat> as a story of the beginning and middle and an end. You know, in its beginning, it put children into factories and said that, that we could never make a profit from machinery unless children operated it. Later, it learned to be more mature, that, in fact, it's better to not do that. And, and in fact, from about the 1840s, it constructed a social bargain with the working class that lasted 150 years, which was actually, you know, if we pay you decently, you spend money and you create a domestic economy. We don't want a bunch of slaves with, living on gruel, with a Dickensian-style lifestyle. We make a bargain with you. And that bargain was very explicit in the 19th century. It also involved imperialism. So uh, we, the white workers, will rule the world. When you turn up in India, you know, as a British soldier, you will have a servant who is black, you know, and you will be entitled to look down upon them as subhuman. Now, that, plus the, the real shared prosperity of capitalism, obviously... It hits a problem in the mid-20th century because it, the, the, it repeated crisis, repeated war. But after World War II, you know, by simply applying the power of you know, rationality, because what state intervention is, is just saying, look, we're going to apply human rationality to the market. We, we created the, the strongest growth and the, the most 
golden period of economic prosperity in the history of that 200 years. So there was, there was the state and there was the market, but the state was boss. You know, in the book, I describe a, a scene where I'm on the field in the Lee Miners Gala, which was an annual uh, festival. Everybody's dressed up. Uh, it's, a, it's got, you know, Punch and Judy shows. It's got, um, you know, everything, all the things of an old fair. And in the middle of it, um, there was a boxing ring. And it's one of my, it is one of my earliest memories. About 1964 or 5, it would have been. There's a boxing ring, and there's a real boxer in there, and then drunken miners are getting up to try and fight him, and he knocks them down one by one. And some of them, they, they, this kind of glazed stare of someone who's just had the shit kicked out of them. <laughs> um, uh, blood everywhere, bruising, horrible. And, and what I remember most about it is my dad's hand coming across my face to just cl- cover my eyes. And he just said to me, don't look. Now, to me, that is what... That, that power that is embodied in that society that is there, presented on that field, the compassion of a person saying, you don't need to look at this. But I think back to it, every, almost every adult in that space would have been employed by the state, miners, railway workers, en- en- engineers, you know, uh, steel workers. Uh, there, there was a private sector, cotton producing electronics, etc. But a lot of people were either employed by the state or making military. You know, there'd been a big arms industry there from the Second World War. And our water, our transport, our energy, our housing, by and large, for most of them, the state provided it. Now, what then we get to the, the crisis, because what those workers did, you know, in the 60s, left So is that story? Is that story about uh, about watching that fight? Do you take from that story a sort of powerful sense of of actually a solidarity, but I mean muscular sense of no, solidarity? No, no, I, I think is it's something deeper. It's that, it's that if we are to live as working-class people, we must experience the brutality and not look down on it. We must be here. Uh, you know, my, my dad could have said, we're not going to that because it's full of rough, drunk assholes. But he didn't. He said, you've got to go. And when we're there, we fight for decency um and that is that is a working class morality and it, you know in the in the book which you know we will explore I, I i lament the the failure of the left to produce a morality but it didn't need to because the working class always produced their own morality some aspects of that were very bad the abuse the hierarchy the patriarchy the domestic violence but the aspect of it that said we can live with this brutality as long as we bring something uh, a, a human quality to it so the story is about that, but it's also about the, the, the world that it's not accidental that the world that creates that attitude is one where the state is taking responsibility for its citizens and providing to them as a right water, electricity, etc. And and what happens, the crisis happens, the crisis of the Keynesian economic model happens because the workers were so strong that the. the People like Herbert Marcuse, you know, uh, the, the kind of new left in the 60s and said, the workers, are, the workers are too weak. They're all distracted. We have to rely on the peasants of the third world to make socialism. No, as soon as the, the crisis comes, the workers respond to the initial crisis of the 73 oil crisis by saying, well, we, we want more wages. And they got them. Uh, there was virtual working cl- workers control in many factories. Later, when I became a left winger and met actual workers who were serious and seasoned class combatants. I understood how much control they'd had in the workplace. But the Thatcher generation said, we can't live with this. Capitalism can't survive with this. In fact, you know... Is that true? Do you think it was true? Well, the unfortunate thing is, I think it could have survived 
with but with with a less um, aggressive, you know, a less aggressive adaptation to global and financial capitalism. Look, what I mean, Thatcher said that trade unions had too much power, and you're sort of slightly well, agreeing with her. <laughs> well, well the, theoretically, and I cover this in part in my previous book, Post-Capitalism, theoretically, there is an, among economists an argument about whether indeed the wage power of the workers under the Keynesian model basically brought it to its knees. Now, I don't think on its own it did that, but look, like, when you've got like workers dancing through Italian car factories in conga lines uh, and you know staging wildcat strikes, um, I met a, a veteran of the of the early seventies um, Italian work, work, working class this week, and I said to him, "What did you do in '68?" He said, "Oh, in '68, I was fourteen. I occupied Naples University. That's why I never got a degree." I said, "What did you do?" I said, "Oh, he invited philosophers in." This was when people say working class now. They often mean a poorly educated, poorly skilled person who's, who doesn't know what happens outside three streets that they live in. But what working class meant in that era was somebody who could occupy Naples University at the age of 14 and invite Ivan Illich to come and give a lecture. So that's how badly they had to smash us to create the world they created. We lost. Uh, the left had to adapt to it. It took me a long time to adapt to the new reality. But... Right now, we're facing a different problem. That system that they created is collapsing just the same as the Keynesian model collapsed, the pre-1914 model, you know, where you could order order goods from everywhere in the empire, that collapsed. Mo- capitalism goes through mutations, and it's going through one right now. And so one of the, one of the things that you talk about in your book uh, is the construction of what you call the neoliberal self. Yeah. So this is not... As it's not just sort of about economics. That, that I mean, economics in, in your narrative is the driving force, yeah. but nonetheless, economics is so powerful. It's not just about we've got in your pocket. It's just it's about it's it's about who you are. Yeah, look, it changes who you are. Yeah, I've written the book because it's quite obvious the world's in trouble. That we've got an economic model that doesn't work for most people, and so their everyday experience is that they they they're poor and powerless. That's resulted in the evaporation of consent for democracy. All over the place, I met people who say, what's the point of democracy? Um, And because democracy requires some element of kind of judgment, what goes with it generally is rationality and the reliance on expert view. So that's gone out the window as well. Rationality and experts, forget them. We're not interested in in logic. And And then... On top of that, we've got this demand for algorithmic control. You know, big corporations and states saying, we will control your life. The Chinese state saying, look, we'll give you marks for your social behaviour. This is coming. I see these three crises of the economy, democracy, and human control over over machines as rooted in a, a profound weakening of the self that took place in that neoliberal era. We constructed two-dimensional selves as highly adapted to dealing with a dog-eat-dog, stab-in-the-back, acquisitive system as my dad was highly adapted to living in a, in a system where everything was given to you by the state. And now <clears throat> that that system no longer works, this self is disorientated. And, 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 and it's, it, it's almost like people began to worship the market. Economics became a religion of handing control to a machine called the but, market. But you talk about this, this, and it no longer works. You, you t- I understand that. You, under, you talk about the self being in trouble, but in but 
but it, one reading of the, 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 what you were describing is that you go from a strong sense of community, mm. and I'm a communitarian, so this is going to be my sort of like, you go this strong sense of community, cricket clubs, yeah. church or whatever it is, um, my, um, trade unions, through that to one where the individual is king and the community and our sort of sense of solidarity which, with each other has collapsed. So, you know, one reading of Thatcherism, the, the, the self comes out of it, uh, is entirely the sort of monarch of yeah, this. Yes, but, but you, you might say that, but the problem is that the self can only... First of all, there's an economic shape to the self. It, it, the kind of person who survives is the kind of person who is prepared to literally take their neighbour's job. To to you know to sell drugs uh, in in the Brazilian uh, uh, favela you know the the survivors are the ones who are prepared to shoot their neighbour become a little king in in their area and and that kind of behaviour filtered down I don't think it's any accident that the the the, avat- the cultural avatars of neoliberal culture were gangsters you know the gangster rapper uh, they became the, the people we despised in our community became the heroes of the community in in the second phase of it so. We adopted two-dimensional selves to survive marketization of our, our living space. But at the same time, technology began, I think, to, to shatter the self. Now, I don't... Shatter's probably too strong a word. We, we, it, 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 social cognition theory, you know, uh, social psychology, recognizes that the way we construct ourselves is by constructing memories. So, what, so when I'm in the gym... I behave as I always behave in the gym. When I'm in the pub, I do pub-like behaviours. If I'm on a football field, depending on which one, football terrace, you know, it's I'm more. He's raucous. a Manchester United it, fan. It, I it, just I have to tell you, this, I, is a, I, this is a terrible. I thing. watch rugby more than I watch okay, uh, good. association football. But so you, we have these different selves constructed by memories. Now, for my dad's work, my dad's world was work, the pub, the church once a week, uh, the the home. And the brass band practice hall, that's it. On your app, you've probably got 40 or fi- on your cell phone, you've probably got 40 or 50 apps. And if you want to, you can construct a self into each of those apps. Yes, 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 yes. And then there's real life. So you are anything you want to be. For my dad's generation, and for me, to be honest, formed in that social reality, um, it the most dishonorable thing was to be false, or as we call it in Lancashire, force. It's an old Anglo-Saxon word. When I looked it up, I found that it could mean like whispering or lying or stealing. You know, the, the, the root word, force, is, is a very powerful Anglo-Saxon word. And a, a lot of gay men, you know, were, were forced to live double lives. Um, but in je- and, and, and or anybody who lived a double life or who was not presenting the exact same persona in all of these different places was looked down on or seen as, as otherized. They were, they were wrongans, you know? Um, Today, that's how we live. You know, if, 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 if I pick the phone up and go, and my boss is on the phone, and I, I, I kind of give him a load of bullshit about where I am, what am I doing, and then, you know, I've seen people do this. Um, they live their lives through devices, and they're projecting completely different selves. So one of the, difference, one of the differences between your, your dad's world and your world is that um, his cultural world was a given, and you, and, and, and you adapt to that given... Whereas your world, our world, yeah. is a world where we choose to make ourselves up. It's choice. Yeah, it's, and that's a sort of market 
Yeah. It's a sort of market gesture about yeah. how you. We're all, as who Foucault we are. says that we're as, as Michel Foucault says we're entrepreneurs of the self. But the problem is, as he also said, we become eminently governable. And I'll tell you one thing: the generation I grew up with were not governable. Yeah. Uh, and I don't feel governable. And I look at uh, just people coming out of university. So the irony is, we've got we've been told we've got more choice, but actually we always choose the same things. I mean, this is how well, your point about eternal recurrence or whatever. We do have choice, and we have choice. We have the ability to create a much more multiple self, uh, almost a, as, as, as the uh, psychoanalyst Sherry Turkle says, a leaky self, a self that we're, 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 we're more social because of the network technology that we have. That's good. I don't want to go backwards in history. I like the idea of, 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 of a new kind of person who can invent themselves. Rather in, see, Virginia Woolf says... Um, uh, some, Your some, dad would have hated that, wouldn't he? Yeah, he would. See, but, but the upper class always had it. <clears throat> Virginia Woolf says um, uh, most people have at least a hundred uh, personas. Right. Yeah. Now, what she meant by most people was most people who live in Bloomsbury, right? Because yes, it's very true that her servants didn't have multiple personas. Because yeah. she, when she writes servants in her literature, she, she, they're very two-dimensional people, and 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 she makes very off comments in in her diaries about about what you know about servants and working class people in general but now technology gives us all the right to invent ourselves every day and we do reinvent and invent ourselves and we can project personas we can play with our ourselves but the, the the problem is the self we've created is no very disorientated because as much as i can go on tinder grinder snapchat and be a different person on each one the problem is the fundamental flaw on which that self was was formed, which is Homo economicus, the 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 rational the rationally choosing economic actor, now is destroyed because the economy doesn't work. And what I think is happening is that the a whole several generations at once are being disorientated by the fact that they've constructed a self around a reality that no longer works, and so they're going through in reverse what my dad's generation went through. They're trying to adapt, but they're not sure. At least we knew what we were adapting to. So you, you have know, this. They, they don't know what the future even holds for them. So your book, your new book, um, Clear Bright Future, um, which is really great, really a really radical great. defense of the human being. A radical, subtitle. and 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 this is a quote from uh, Trotsky to yeah. say, "I still believe in the future despite what everything." So you're an optimist. I I am an optimist because I think humanism has to has to make one optimistic. I chose the Trotsky quote because it's always been seemed to me, it's always seemed to me um, that that there was it, there was something more in in it than a simple affirmation of optimism. It, look, his his followers and he had tens of thousands of followers in Russia in 1937 when he wrote this were in the gulag. They were being executed in batches of ten. Um, the the re many of the rest were in German concentration camps. Um, he himself had been hounded out of Europe, Turkey, everywhere. And he, he wrote a, a thing called A Planet Without a Visa. He, he, he is stateless. Uh, and, he, and, and he calls these philosophers and, 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 and jurists from America to, 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 to put him on trial in Mexico and say, come on, am I guilty of what they, call, what they accuse me of? Stalin, you know, he says, I'm a fascist agent, etc. And they said, no, obviously not. And, he, and then his, his final testimony was, I still believe in the clear, bright future of mankind, just as much as I did when I went into the workers' districts of um, Odessa, you know, in Russia in the late 19th century. And the, and the foundation of that belief for a Marxist is not nothing to do with the working class, you know, being 
you know, rebellious in one era and not in another. It's to do with the idea that we believe that, you know, humans are technologists, imagination, they have an imagination. We are, we have evolved to make our environment better. And that's, I wanted to bring to this di discussion we're all having about what the fuck do we do about, um, you know, fascism and Trump and everything, Brexit. I wanted to bring the, the ultimate source of optimism for me, which is the technological capability of humankind and its ability to, to do self-knowledge. And that is what we're going to have to start from if we're to defeat all the... Well, optimism has a bit of a sort of... Circular, optimism has a bit of, a, a bit of a bad rap at the moment. And I mean, what I mean by that is, I guess, you know, that awful things can only get better... You yeah, know, Labour, Dream song, all the way through to yeah. Stephen Pinker, who I know you're not a fan of, and all those sorts yeah. of all those sorts of pop science type of books that is constantly talking. You about. get it thrown at you it, all the time. Look, the, the elephant graph. You know, the idea that that um, that neoliberalism has brought you know uh, you know the, the bottom two thirds of the world's population out of poverty. Yes, it has, but you know, but, but it, it did so by putting them into factories and slums that are hell holes. But you know. So, that's what's that's that's progress in a, in a, in a way, uh, and then you keep getting told you know look how few people die in wars you know and yet and yet we're living through some of the worst wars and genocides, you know certainly of since the Holocaust, neoliberalism and and indeed liberalism. Look, I'm not I'm not at war with liberalism. I want to tr it to try and help it save itself, but it needs to save itself from this blind optimism that keeps saying because technological progress is is. Is happening, um, and because the, the the invention of the Kevlar jacket means that if you get shot with a high velocity bullet, you can live. It doesn't mean that that social progress is happening. And liberalism linked itself to the logic of the market, this neoliberal system. And the, the it's I, I I've got this metaphor which I, I think it's like if you see a it's like seeing a, an abandoned and derelict house and, and seeing the old wallpaper on on the kind of second floor and the the, the, the empty fireplace. And then somebody telling you that wallpaper can can only exist in the derelict house. So the ideas of liberalism can only exist in this shattered neoliberal system. It's refusing to adapt. It's refusing to say, look, no, we could put the wallpaper on a different surface. Um, we can we can uh, we we can adapt liberalism to a fragmented global system. Uh, now I don't. Want to do, I'm not a liberal. I don't want to do that. I am a left-wing, radical, Marxist, social democrat. But at least I want to talk to liberals about what's gone wrong with liberalism. Um, and technology we, gives liberalism... The, 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 the philosophy of liberalism gives it greater power, gives it greater reach. Well, in a way, not. OK. Because at the centre of liberalism is the single human being with a set of rights... No, as soon as you try, as soon as you invent this multifaceted self, which is uh, shape shifting, it's interesting that a lot the the protagonists of a lot of movies are shape shifters and not heroes anymore. Uh, that, and uh, that shape shifting aspect to the self is very problematic for liberalism per se, because you only have a set of human rights centered on you because you have one self that embodies them. And of course, liberalism is is an emergence from from the Christian Enlightenment, which gives you a soul. So, you know, uh, liberals of John Stuart Mill's era believe, believed in that. And, and they would say about black slaves in, 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 uh, in, in America, they have the divine spark, therefore they are human. 
that was liberalism. Now, in a situation where technology is shattering the self, of course, liberalism is going to find it very hard to to defend you know its its inner core, but it can at least defend institutions. The problem is it decided to defend the one institution that is collapsing, and that is the neoliberal financial economy. And if you speak now, if you think about you know Peter Mandelson or or you know Vince Cable or or in America Hillary Clinton, the classic liberal Macron in France, the classic liberals, they are. These are people who cannot think beyond the present. And therefore, I I am quite pessimistic. I want the left to make an alliance with liberalism to defend democracy and tolerance uh, and and to reform the global system. But I'm pessimistic because they are losing their marbles. They are losing the the raison d'etre of liberalism. Uh, And what what is frightening is is how, how skin deep liberalism is for the financial elite. If you look at, Giles, if you look at Brazil, the very people who, the kind of beautifully cufflinked, you know, sort of uh, manicured people who run the Brazilian finance system were the people who went straight over to this fascist Bolsonaro, you know, and and I I fear that we'll, I've seen it in Austria as well, you know, these well-groomed, identitarian, trendy young men, you know, uh, standing at the border with a Spartan symbol saying, "Up, up yours to any migrant who was trying to cross it. It's, um, it's frightening how, how skin-deep liberalism has become among what we call the liberal elite. Of course, if you're a shapeshifter, presumably, then you're easy, you're easy to move from, from liberalism to fascism. It's, just a, you're just, it's another form of reinvention. Well, look, what happened in Germany, and I'm a huge fan, although a critic, of, of Hannah Arendt, yes. and there's a whole book in my... There's a whole chapter yeah. in my book says, which says, reading Arendt is not enough. I was, but I have to say about this chapter, I was, I reacted very strongly in favour of it. So I'm a, I, I didn't know what you said about right. Arendt, and I was sort of like, oh my word, this is quite shocking. Right. So, well, no, no, but she, she is a great uh, chronicler of the rise of fascism. She calls fascism the temporary alliance of the elite and the mob, and and she says it needs access to history, both the elite and the unorganized, xenophobic, racist, anti-Semitic mob needed to, re- to stop history in, in, in that sense. that History was going towards progress. Uh, you know, that world, if you watch that, that, that series on Netflix, Babylon, Berlin, in a way, you know, it wasn't a bad world, uh, it, the Weimar Republic. But they needed to stop that. The shocking quote is her quote about America. That's, oh, that's, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's no, yeah. That, yeah. But I, before we get to that, it's the, the idea of what, is, of what is happening here is that when faced with the power of this new irrationalism, it wasn't the, the, the working class who were incredibly socialist and self-educated and then the liberal, Catholic liberal intelligentsia by and large in, in Germany gave up. They just said, "Look, we can't beat it. There's nothing we can do. We're paralysed." You know, the, the, later in the in the Second World War, you get rebellions led by that sort of religiously inspired uh, liberalism. Uh, the Stauffenberg plot against Hitler, you know, partly involved that. And of course, the workers at the first opportunity did try and do things. But it, she, what's brilliant about Arendt is her understanding of the way these liberal elites allow themselves to be permeated by the very thing that's going to destroy them. If you watch Fox News today, or the, the, you know, there are even the kind of airheaded celebrities in Britain, you know, who 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 talk, flirt with the, the 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 kind of far right. What you're seeing is that the you know Fox News is the sine qua non of this. It's, Fox News basically is a transmission belt for all the propaganda of the far right into the liberal world, and. 
and you can't avoid it. Even if you say, I'm not going to watch it, you know, it, it, it's like a vampire. It's predatory. It, it, it is interested in, Trotsky once said, you know, war is interested in you, even if you're not interested in war. Uh, but you could also say that about Fox News. You know, Fox News is interested in you and will profile you. It's the same with the tabloids in Britain and the right-wing websites. They will hound you, they will profile you, even if you've said nothing at, at all uh, about them. And um, Arendt is superb at say, at explaining how liberalism corroded in Germany. Uh, and yes, her mistake, which you allude to, and I point into in, into in the in the book is that Arendt believed that America was immune to this. Arendt says it's the oldest, you know, it's a it's a utilitarian democracy. It's a republic. Um, she's writing this in the forties and fifties. There's no reason not to not to write that. But if she if she was right then, my goodness, how wrong is she yeah, now? Yeah. Because America yeah. is the center of the world of irrational right wing thought, and. Um, so there's, like, the scary thing about now, as I say in the book, look, Arendt escaped Germany to America. Many others did. You know, uh, the, the half the Hollywood screenwriters and composers were Jews from, from Nazi Germany. Uh, and good. Uh, but there's no escape from this. There's nowhere to go. Um, it is, you know, the, Nazi Germany was defeated by Russian Stalinism, brutal dictatorship as well as by the Allies. And, and now the Allies are Trump and Russia is Putin. So We're, Nobody's coming to save <clears throat> us except us. So the clear, bright future that you talk about here, one of your, uh, one of your forms of optimism is an, and, and the form of resistance to the, the structure that you're talking about is actually much smaller, isn't it, than a sort of like a Stalin that can come along and break it up. It's actually a sort of individual, small, little forms of resistance well, that you're advocating. If, if the only thing that can save us is us, we have to start out by defending the concept of who we are. That, that's why I call the book A Radical Defense of the Human Being. I think that the two-dimensional market created in the last 40 years was an anti-human construct. It, it, the first act was to say, you know, we used to target full employment. Full employment should be the aim of economic policy. Why? So that humans can work, uh, which is a fulfilling thing. Everybody wants to do it and earn wages. What was the first thing they did? They said the new target is, is a number. The new target is an inflation target. Doesn't matter. No, you to hit that target, it doesn't matter what happens to human beings. It's just that the target has to be right. And that was the, the crucial thing of moving economics into the anti-human sphere. Then we then we see um, the logic of the market applied to everything. That you know, the logic of the market applied to you know even criminality. You know, can we incentives and disincentives, carrots and sticks? Can we get less crime if we if we if we give if we do the following punishments? Is that's the classic Gary Becker. Um, neoliberal ideology as applied to law enforcement. It's not, nothing to do with, there's no actual market in prisoners, but there are market norms of behaviour enforced in jails and the criminal justice system. And then now we've got algorithmic control, which is a demand for human beings to surrender more and more control to automated so processes. So what, what are our little forms of resistance to this? Yeah, what? but the, the point is that the only thing that can resist it is a human self-confident in its in its three, right to a 360-degree humanity. That's the first thing. And, and why is it, simply saying that is a form of resistance? Because you can go on a university course in every capital city in this world that will teach you that that is bullshit. That you, anti-humanism, both of the right and of the left, 
is very strong. Postmodernism, which is a philosophical, uh, you know, and, and, and social cultural uh, phenomenon that has dominated this neoliberal era, I would call the slave ideology of neoliberalism. It, it teaches you that resistance is futile, that logic and causation can't be, you can't, you can't follow, and therefore we've got to resist that in the name of being human, and therefore we have to have a theory of who we are. So you're excoriating about neoliberalism, but you want to make an alliance with liberals. OK, so the connection between neoliberalism and liberalism, OK, is one that presumably, I mean, they come from the same source. So why would you want to make an alliance with liberals? No, but let's understand what neoliberalism was. The 19th century liberalism said the state stands above society and the market runs everything. But the neoliberals said, no, if you do that, the market just consolidates into both monopolies and the state becomes bigger because the state needs to control. The original founders of neoliberalism understood that a market left to itself would create a state-run, uh, a highly organised uh society. And therefore, what you have to do, keep doing is to coercively intervene. Neoliberalism is a, is a theory of state control, state intervention to break up formations, to create constant chaos into which the market forces can re-emerge. Now, I, I am, it's tragic that liberalism allied itself so, so strongly to that. But the reason we need to, it's quite practical, the reason why we need to make an attempt on alliance between liberalism and neoliberalism and, and, and the left is that both of us share a commitment to rationality, the rule of law, and I hope the universality of human rights. Because these things are the things that are are coming down the track. You know, the Chinese government is using technology to give marks out of 10 to the members of the Communist Party, on which depend whether they get housing, whether they get a new job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This it's will be applied to everybody else. Facebook stole and Cambridge Analytica, I think, helped Trump steal the election in 2016. Um, I think the Bre Brexit uh, vote was dodgy for, for similar reasons. Our very democracies are going to be manipulated and manipulable if we, if we give in to that. We need an alliance of everybody who, who, who agrees with, with the rule of law, democracy and human rights. And that is, the, in the 1930s, that's what happened. The Spanish Civil War happened because a government of liberals came to power, supported by the left. 36 in Spain, in, in France, the uh, occupation of the factories, same thing, popular front government. I, I'm avert here that we need a new form of the popular front, an alliance of the left, the working class, and the liberal... Le Left-wing populism, like Chantal Mouffe talks about. Well, I, I wouldn't align myself with Mouffe because I think there are many problems with, with her theory. And, and, and I wouldn't call myself a populist. But I certainly think we, that, we, that we're in a populist world and we have to use those means uh, to fight. That's not, that's not really what my book's about. My book's about what are we fighting for? And what we have to absolutely make sure we do not do is replicate all the anti-human... Uh, forms of resistance that took place in the 20th century. I'm acutely you know, aware of, uh, you know, I'm a member of the Labour Party. I, I, I zip backwards and forwards to talk to the progressive Democrats and to the left in Germany and Spain. I'm acutely aware of the residue of Stalinism within the Labour movement. Uh, and the need, and I, for me, it's the most anti-human form of leftism uh, and the need to, to consciously combat it. Um, one of the heroes... Of, of this book, um, a hero that I share, and it seems to be going all the way through, is Alistair McIntyre. Yeah. And, uh, and he's uh, an interesting figure because he was a Marxist originally and then yeah. became a sort of... The, the most fa famous, on. you know, uh, theologian stroke communitarian philosopher of our time. Uh, let, me say, let me tell you why. 
the big future challenge, we've talked a lot about the economic and, and, and social problems. The big future challenge is technology. We can use this technology to free humanity. We Like the end of that movie, uh, Elysium, where only the rich live off the planet. Oh, I know the, that one. Yes, yeah, yes, yes. When, yes, they, yes. All, the, when, they, when they reclassify human, everybody as humans, the machines on the off-world planet come back to Earth and cure everybody and rebuild the, the world. That's what, that's what artificial intelligence and automation could do for us within a century. And probably... We're going to, you know, we're going to need that technology to solve climate change as well. I'm very positive about the technological future, um, but we're going to need to take control of that. And um, now, once we're in that world, to run artificial intelligence uh, and algorithmic uh, control systems ethically means you have to have an ethics that applies to the whole of humanity. And this is what drove me in the direct. I, I basically said, look, I'm surrounded in my life by people talking about artificial intelligence and saying we need to make it more ethical. Artificial intelligence doesn't need a set of ethics. It needs a moral philosophy for the whole human race. And so you have to go back and you can't just, you know, the classic CEO responses, you know, get me Sophia in Corporate social responsibility. I need a set of ethics oh, on my on my, de- on my I won't desk. I about business ethics anymore. By, by, Just... by ten a.m. Yeah, tomorrow yeah, morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but what businesses are going to have to adopt moral philosophies, and there are pre- probably only about four available. One known to everybody: Friedrich Nietzsche, "Fuck you," you know. Uh, Murder people at will if you need to. Uh, you know there is no morality. Just get on with enjoying your human life. If we program that into the future artificial intelligences of the world, it will make it that that AI will make itself the Superman that Nietzsche talks about, and we will just be the, its servants. You can use utilitarianism. Look, you know, how do you make apples best? How, what's the how, make few people unhappy? But ultimately, there is to me only the Aristotelian philosophy of virtue, which is the the point of a moral system is to make society good and the human being good so that the human being has the capacity to live the good life and that the society around them has the capacity to nurture that good life. If I write, you know, as I said, there were many things wrong with the world I grew up in in my childhood, but I, I am old enough to have experienced a eudaimonic society, eudaimonious, you know, the, the good spirits that, that Aristotle writes about. But the problem with Aristotelian philosophy is that it's based on the idea that humans have a purpose. It has a, as we call it in philosophy, a teleology. Yeah. Humans have a yeah. destiny. That's a religious, it's as a religious, yeah. I mean, in, in the way Christians apply this yeah. is it has a sort of religious no, teleology. No, uh, no. There's a point, there's a point or a purpose. Absolutely, and the point of is, is your, is to achieve, you know, in whatever you go to heaven. Well, human flourishing might be a... Yeah, a, there is one philosopher in the secular canon uh, who basically took that, I think, and he's not often recognised as a moral philosopher, but it is Marx. For me, the, the humanist Marx is is an implicitly Aristotelian thinker. He is saying the purpose of communism is, he says communism is just naturalism, that it is, it is to be at one with the nature and it is just radical humanism. It is, it is the fulfilment of the human destiny to free ourselves using imagination and technology and productivity and knowledge. And that is that is there in Marx. It's the first thing he actually wrote. McIntyre, of course, in the 60s, McIntyre was in this kind of far left and he was, he was a philosopher from, from that world of the 50s. And he broke with Marxism because he couldn't see, I don't think he leaves, uh, he doesn't leave a a forensic trace of why he breaks with Marxism, but I think he, he he breaks with it because he can't see 
a Marxist moral philosophy, and he just ceases to be the editor of the most famous Marxist magazine. And the next minute, he's basically a theologian. And he himself was going to... A great theologian. Yeah, well, you you, you (laughs) may say that. Um, But... The evolution of his thought, I've kind of also kind of read the various evolutions of his essentially communitarian, Aristotelian, Christian thought. I've tried to trace it back and go, well, what if you did try and re- and establish more more profoundly an Aristotelian Marxism? Now, the, people who are frightened by both of those words shouldn't be, because my book is not a work of philosophy, but it is an exploration of what would it be like to re-establish a pro-human morality um, in this very shattered world of frightened people, of confused people, people who surrounded by, you know, being gaslighted and 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 and, and doxxed and and kind of the harassed and the violence streaming through social media. What would it mean? What what would it mean to create to, to do something for the good of humanity? And you can only answer those questions in a non-religious way if you root it in a theory of humans. And that's why, again, you know, there's a joke, isn't there? To find out how many postmodernists there are in your university, just say the word human nature and watch them scream. (laughs) To me, the left has to have a debate about human nature because in the 21st century, it's quite possible that Marxism will come back as the ruling ideology of great China. Um, and that will be an anti-humanist Marxism. That will be a Marxism that says there is no universality, that you know that human rights are not universal, human cultures aren't universal, therefore, fuck the Enlightenment, fuck rationality. Um, if, if I say blue is green, blue is green. If two and two is five, it's five. We, we know, because of the 20th century, that Mao and Stalin were able to do that with Marxism, and I'm going to be absolutely certain that the 21st century is not going to lead the most oppositional coherent form of oppositional ideas that we have done in that direction. Well, that's a really great place to end. It's like that I we could talk. I think we could we could sit here and talk for hours yeah, about man. all of this. It's absolutely brilliant. I've got a million questions, but I'm and I'm much more pessimistic than you. And uh, I both agree with you and disagree with you very strongly in equal measure. And fantastic to talk. Is that all we brilliant. can do is link arms and go. Forward. Yes, yeah, no, I sort of I sort of get that. They're very good, very good. Thank you. Cheers, dear boy. Very good indeed. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Confessions with me, Giles Fraser. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate and review it. And do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be joined by another guest next week for another episode of Soul Bearing. And I do hope you'll tune in then. And do check out the website, unheard.com. Confessions.